You're listening to a sermon from Redeeming Life Church. Amen. Thanks, man. Uh, Would you go ahead and turn over to Romans 6, the passage that Ben just read? Romans 6, 1 through 14. How's everybody doing? Pretty quiet. All right, good. Uh, It's really humbling to be up here again. Um, The stand that'll stay. just want to say quick disclaimer, man, this week has been really, uh, really rough, but really good in prepping for this, as it, I hope it always is. Um, there's probably about 25 sermons that could be preached out of these 14 verses. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, you're only going to get one. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's exactly what God has been preaching to me, and as I've been talking this week to Ben and Brian, um, uh, I hope to never preach to people what God isn't preaching to me from His Word. And so this has been really convicting and impactful for me. Um, there was a couple days where I was in tears praying through some of these things about my own life. And out of that, I hope to encourage you through this Word today. Um, but before we begin, I just want to pray one more time if we could do that before we get started into this Word. So, Father, I just ask that, that every word that is about to be spoken from my mouth, God, would be anointed from You and Your Spirit. God, I pray that you would remove anything from my mind and my heart that is not from you or from your word or is not truth. God, I pray that this word would not return void as your word promises that it will not. I pray that it will impact every single heart in this room, including my own. God, and that it would cut us to the core and that it would convict us in the areas that we are weak and that we would be inspired by your word and by Jesus himself to press on and to wake up tomorrow with a renewed courage and vision to follow you. Um, God, thank you for the opportunity to sit under the authority of your word tonight. God, it is your word that critiques us, and we are not critiquing your word tonight. We pray that you would be exalted and magnified in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, Romans 6, Ben just read it for us. Um, So I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but I do want to start right at the beginning. Uh, Verse 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? I think this is funny how Paul kind of uses this kind of like, almost like a hyperbolic statement of like, should we go on sinning so the grace may increase? Like, by no means. Like, are you crazy? This is an absolutely ridiculous kind of a question he's asking. Based on the DNA of what it means to be a Christian, to go on sinning and living habitually in sin is utterly ridiculous. So this is kind of the point right off the gate. Paul's like, look, if you're living habitually in sin... That's a little bit ridiculous. And so we start off with Paul asking this question, by no means, absolutely not. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Then verse 3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Um, so real quick, real note on baptism. If you guys have not been baptized, if you are a Christian, if you are following Jesus, if you profess and believe that Christ is your Lord and He's your Savior and you have not walked down that road to that step, to that point in your faith to gain baptized, I want to encourage you 
talk to me, Brian, Ben, talk to one of us about what that means. That is an incredibly essential part of your salvation story. It's a part of your faith journey. It is an outward sign of an inward change that Christ has done in you. And so this is the language that Paul is also using as we are buried with Christ and raised again. You see the same symbolic imagery of being baptized where we are dunked in the water. We are buried with Christ and we are raised to new life in Christ. That old self has gone. The new man has come. And Paul talks about that in verse, um, I think it's 6 can't find it. It's in here. Um, That's really helpful for your study. It's in there. Yeah, it is verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, so that's just a quick side note on baptism. If you guys have questions about that, if you're scared, you don't understand the theology behind that, we would love to talk to you about what that means and why that is really important. That's why it's a really big deal. Um, So, Let's go back to verse 1 and 2 real quick. I just want to quote a couple more verses that have the same language of dying to sin. Um, Colossians 3.3 says, For you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. 2 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. I love what um, John MacArthur says about this passage and this concept of being dead to sin, alive in Christ. He says this. He says, We die to sin insofar that righteousness becomes the rule of life, and sin now is the painful, mortifying, humiliating, heartbreaking exception. I think that's a really great way to look at this. If we are Christians, sin has no more mastery over us because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We are dead to sin. The slavery of sin no longer has the power to bind us up anymore. We have the freedom. We have the ability. We have the power through the Spirit to resist temptation, to fight the devil, to resist and fight sin. And so this, I think, is the nuance here that Paul is talking about. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I grew up hearing words and phrases like this, like we are supposed to be dead to sin, alive in Christ. And I'm thinking, that sucks. I sin all the time. How does that work? Right? Anybody relate to sinning? Anybody? (laughs) Okay. So I grew up having this huge shame-guilt battle where I'm supposed to be dead to sin, meaning dead, lifeless. There's no more activity happening over here, dead to sin. Yet I still struggle. How does that work? I think what Paul is trying to get at here and what we talked about is this, this nuance between are we habitually living in sin, perpetually sinning, not concerned really about it, or are we on the other side where we are, we are in an active war with our sin? We are not content with it. We are not comfortable with it. It grieves us when we sin. It grieves us when we sin against God. And we are engaged mentally, spiritually, physically even in a battle to defeat our own personal sin. That's the distinction Paul's getting at. And so our encouragement today, obviously, is to be on this side of the equation. We ought to be people that are engaged actively in war with our sin. We all know, I think it's Ephesians that talks about that we have an enemy. He's prowling around like a lion, seeking for people to destroy and to devour. We aren't just 
here to hang out on the beach until Jesus comes again. This is a battle. And so every day we wake up, we have to deal with our flesh. As Paul is going to say in Romans, I think in the next couple chapters as we get into our Romans more in the next few weeks, that the flesh is constantly in contradiction and battle with the Spirit. The Spirit that is in us through Christ that we've been given as a deposit is constantly at war with the flesh that's also also within us. And so we have to continually remember this truth that we were once dead to sin, and now we are alive in Christ. And then what I want to focus a lot of, a lot of our time on today is verse 4. Is So we've, we were dead, we are alive in Christ, now what? Okay, look at verse the end of verse 4. I'll just read verse 4 again. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised to, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Uh, this is where a lot of it got really convicting for me. Um, it doesn't notice that the uh, the passage doesn't say we were dead. We were dead to sin, alive in Christ, and now we sit in newness of life. Right? It doesn't say we are dead to sin, alive in Christ, and now we stand in newness of life. It says we are dead to sin, alive in Christ, and now we walk in newness of life. I love how that imagery, dead, alive, walk, this walking implies movement. There should be this movement in our lives as we are constantly journeying with Christ, defeating sin, battling sin, walking in personal spiritual disciplines. We're walking with God. How many of you have heard that phrase or have been asked that question? How's your walk with God? Anybody ever heard that phrase, right? That's kind of what I think of when I hear this thing, walking in newness of life. And so one of the questions for you today, just applicationally already, is are you actually walking in that newness of life, in that identity as a alive to Christ believer? Are you walking in that? Have you sat down? Are you just standing here? Do you know someone in your life who's just sitting or standing and you know that they're supposed to be walking? I think we can all probably think of at least one person, if not ourselves, in one season or another of our lives where we have said, oh, all right, God, I'm just going to hang out here for a little bit. And we haven't been called to sit. Amen? Amen. Okay? So the sit, stand, walk. We are called to walk in newness of life. And so um, as, we, as we embrace our identity in Christ and are being more sanctified by Him, um, the question that I want to ask us tonight is, are we... Are, Am I, are you, are we living in a transformed way that leads us to walk continually in that transformed path? Because of Jesus, because we have been freed from the tyranny of sin, Christ has provided an opportunity to live in a new and transformed way. Amen? Amen. Freedom in Christ allows us and gives us the opportunity to live a new alternative. That's what the gospel is all about. From death to life from dead to alive, from buried to raised. This is a new chapter, a new season. The challenge for us is some of us, and myself included, we are saved or we have that moment where we say, Jesus, I profess you as Lord and Savior. I want to follow you with my life. And we get comfortable. And we, it's easier to stand, isn't it? And sometimes it's even easier to sit. That's way more comfortable. I'd rather be sitting right now. But I should probably stand. Or I should probably be walking with Christ. And so the question that I want to keep challenging us to think through is, what does your walk look like? 
What does it look like? If we are truly dead to sin and raised to new life, then how in the world are we supposed to be going on living in the same manner to which we were supposedly saved from? If we're supposedly different, if we're supposedly saved, we're supposedly dead, and now we're alive, shouldn't we look different? Shouldn't we be different? A new, risen life should have a new set of purposes, desires, convictions, all that which lead us to pursue Jesus with a reckless abandon in order to glorify His name, share the gospel, evangelize, you name it. All of these things are in our DNA as a believer. We are not called to be comfortable. We are not called to just sit and enjoy a service on Sunday morning. We are called to be doers of the Word. We are called to walk in newness of life. We are called to have purposes, desires, and a design that God has given us through the Gospel to live out each day. And so this is, this is another thing, is what are your purposes? What are your desires and what are your convictions? And are those any different than when you were not saved? Or if you are not saved here tonight, if you are not a believer, what are your purposes and desires leading you to? Is that leading to life? Is that leading to something that fulfills you every day? If it's not, I would submit to you that Jesus is the answer for that. Listen to this quote. Um, This is from a journal that I use. I should have brought it to show you. It's called the Live Dead Journal. It's just a 30-day walk through a bunch of different devotions written by missionaries all over the country and all over the world. Um, And for the emphasis of learning how to pray for the nations and pray for the lost, pray for the gospel to spread. In this was this quote, I am not the gospel. You are not the gospel. What you and I do is not the gospel. The gospel applies to all people everywhere across all ages and cultures. The gospel is what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do in Christ. A Christ-centered gospel demands, therefore, a Christ-centered missionary. If we are to be faithfully proclaiming Christ, we must know Him intimately. We can only know Him intimately if we spend extravagant time with Jesus. Extravagant time with Jesus on a daily basis is the only foundation for fruitfulness in our life. Amen. So this, this is what tore me up, is that it's incredibly easy to read, it's incredibly hard to live. What does it look like to spend extravagant time with Jesus? And surely we don't want to become monks that have no place in the world, that we're so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. But I would submit to you that honestly a lot of us, including myself, are so earthly-minded sometimes that we are no heavenly good. That's my conviction. That's, that's my conviction this week as I study this, I read this. I'm asking myself these questions, talking to my wife, talking to our house fellowship on Thursday, and thinking through, I don't, I don't know how extravagant my time with Jesus is. And and so since we have been and this is the thing, like we have been brought from death into life. And we say that so flippantly sometimes. But do you know what the Greek word for dead means? De- dead. <laughs> okay? I did a lot of research on that one this week. Yeah. Dead. Lifeless. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Right? We we were dead in our sins. Ephesians talks about we were dead. Christ in His power made us alive with Christ. And so we owe God our everything, as we sang about in that song. And I'll stand, I can't remember the words, our, our arms wide open. To you I surrender everything, Lord, right? 
We owe God our entire life, and our whole life is now capable of producing righteousness because Christ and the Spirit are in us through the power of the gospel and as we are under grace, as we see in our passage as well here at the very last verse. It says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. So now as we work towards working out our salvation with fear and trembling, like we've been saved for a purpose. God did not save you to sideline you. That was by David Platt, one of my favorite lines of his. He did not save you to sideline you and to put you on the bench, as Brian was saying. There's seasons for that, but he saved you to save other people. He's redeemed you to redeem the lost and the hurting in your life. He has pursued you so that you would go and pursue other people that are hurt, broken, lost, dying, living in sin and loving it. This is a cycle. We've been saved to go throughout the process and share the gospel with people in diners. We've been saved to give out Bibles. We've been saved to invite neighbors into our homes and have a meal with them. We've been saved to do all these things so that other people would have the opportunity to learn about this Jesus that makes us alive. And so, present yourself to God. And this is our our challenge. This is my major application, if you will. Present our goal, as it says in our passage today in verse 13, is to present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present yourself. Give yourself to God as a person that has been saved, has been reconciled. That should mean something to us. And I know about for you, but when I grow up, I'm thinking, as I grew up, I grew up, as I was saying, thinking, how can I be dead to sin? How can I be alive? I sin and I struggle all the time. The, the goal sometimes, sometimes courage isn't necessarily walking out into the battlefield to take the first shot. Sometimes I think courage is just getting up in the morning, taking a first step, saying, I'm going to keep walking. Okay? So this is not a guilt trip. This is not, oh, if you're not here, uh, But it is, look, wherever you're at, if you're sitting, okay, recognize where you're sitting. Get up. If you're standing, if that's where you're at, okay, start walking. If you're walking, keep going. Okay? And so I want to give you some, some, just some tangible things that I hope will encourage you in this walking wherever you're at. If you're sitting, hopefully something encourages you to stand up. If you're standing, hopefully something encourages you to go, to take that first step. If you're walking and you're weary, as we all get that way, I want to encourage you to keep going. So the, the two biggest essentials in our walk is time in the Word, time in prayer, okay? In, in, I heard this statistic and it just blows me away. This is crazy. So we all talk about reading the Bible and we want to be more in it. We have all got, myself included, we have a reading plan for 2015. I'm going to get through the Bible this year. I've done that before, but I'm going to do it again. And we have these great goals. And yet, at the same time, we're all usually saying, I'm, I'm busy. I'm so busy. I don't have time for that. Or I'm just going to squeeze it in here or squeeze it in there. I, this quote was ridiculous, this, this statistic. It takes about 70 hours to read the Bible from cover to cover. And this quote says, that's about two and a half hours a day. Okay, that seems, that's a lot. I mean, it seems like a lot to just sit down and read this for two and a half hours. But the statistic that's startling, it says, that's less time than the average American spends in front of the television every month. 70 hours total. So that means each day, most people are watching TV for at least two and a half hours a day. So if we just replaced all of our TV time with reading the Bible, most of us would finish the Bible in four or five weeks, cover to cover. That's ridiculous. 
So I now have no excuse because I just told you that statistic. <laughs> you should ask me at least in a few months if I've read through the whole Bible. Um, five weeks. Five weeks, right. <clears throat> and, and so this, this is... And I, I struggle with this because my whole life I've found ways to make excuses for not being in the Word. We all have probably been there. Um, Busy, family, all these things are good things, just time things. But if our entire being and our entire purpose and if our entire DNA is about Jesus, then this should be the first thing on our minds. This should be the first thing that we're like, if I've got free time, I'm going to get in the Word. i got extra 10 minutes here. I'm, I'm going to go work on praying more diligently for the lost. I'm going to go pray for my neighbors. I'm going to go pray for my wife and my son and read and study how to be a better husband by being in this thing. So if that sounds undoable, doing that in, in a few weeks, which is a little daunting, if you read no more than 15 minutes a day, you can read through the whole Bible in a year. That's not that hard, 15 minutes a day. So I want to encourage you to do that as we are walking in newness of life. Um, just other tangible things that I've done over the years, driving a lot, listen to the Bible on audio in your car. You know, how many of you have a smartphone? Anybody? Right? Come on, don't lie. It's okay. I'm not, I have one too. It's okay. The Bible app just speaks to you. Plug it into your car stereo. Put headphones in. Listen to the Bible while you're driving. Do this is the issue. This is the issue I, I'm having in my own life. Do I? Do we? Do whatever it takes to be this type of person. To be the type of person that says I am intimately spending extravagant time with Jesus, no matter what it takes, no matter what the cost is. Because I believe that if I am this way and if I am embracing my DNA, my design to be an intimate follower of Jesus, where I'm spending extravagant time with Jesus, that will transform my life. And then where everywhere that I'm walking, people see it or smell it or get it. Hopefully don't smell. That was weird. It's a really bad example. I hope... <laughs> I hope you don't smell me coming, but I hope you get the aroma of Christ when I come near you, hopefully. And so this, that, is, that is yet to be determined. And so the, that's, the, that's the crux of this for me and for us is, are we willing to do whatever it takes? We say we're Christians. We say we believe in Jesus. My question and my challenge to you is, really, how much? How much do you, really, do you really believe that? Because if you really did, if we really did, we would really be people that were really all about this thing, which is really all about Jesus. And we'd really be in this to the point that it would be spilling out of our lives. You think about a, the overflowing cup analogy. You got a cup, you keep filling it with Jesus, time in the Word, time in prayer, worship, fellowship, whatever, all those things, you fill your cup, right? You do that every single day. And everywhere you go, you've got this cup. And if you have so much of it and you just keep doing it every day, at some point, that cup's going to overflow. So if I've, I've got it over here, I'm going to spill my love and my passion, hopefully for Jesus, on these guys. If I'm over here, hopefully I spill my passion for prayer, for reaching the lost with these guys. And those guys say, man, I, I want to I be that passionate about Jesus too. I'm not saying I am this crazy spiritual guy. I'm not. I have a long, a long way to go. But I think that's what Jesus desires of us. People that are living just overflowing. And we know, I think, it, we know, I always forget the reference, and I should have wrote it down. Um, but out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If my heart is full, if my heart is just crammed full with Jesus, 
intimate time with the person that I love the most in, this, in the entire world, I'm going to talk to you about it at some point. It's going to come out of me. Every time I'm around Shane, praise God. Praise God. Every single time I'm around this guy, I hear something about Jesus or something about God. Is that because Shane is just that way? Or is it because Shane intentionally spends a lot of time with Jesus? I think we can all be that place. I think we should all be at that place. We should all be to that place to some extent where people are around us and say, man, I, I want, I, that guy's passion for Jesus inspires me to be more closer to Jesus. We all have a prayer meeting sometimes that used to happen here at Risen Life, and there's a guy that would pray there, and we all know his name. Whenever he would pray, we would all walk out and say, I am a terrible person. I need to learn how to pray better. That guy is so close to Jesus. I can just tell it by the way he prays. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know people that are just so intimately close to Jesus that they just speak or they say one prayer and you're like, whoa, that guy is at a level with Christ that I want to be at. I think that's how we should be encouraging each other. Encouraging each other to go to the next level, to go to the depths with Christ. So that's, those are some tangible things for being in the Word. Some other things in prayer um, are brought... These are two of the two of the best books I've ever read on prayer. This one Dave, Brian gave me. It's by Dave Early. Prayer, the Timeless Secret of High Impact Leaders. Incredible book about prayer. If you want some, I know Brian and I would give you some. This other one is Why Revival Tarries by Leonard Ravenhill. He's like an 18th century revival preacher. Um, the other guy is still alive, has the church plant in Vegas, went to teaches at Liberty University. But one of the things Leonard Ravenhill says in his book says he he quotes, he says, No man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. Think about that for a second. We want to be great. We want to have an impact on the world. How much do we pray? How dedicated to prayer? Not just, dear God, thank you for our food, although that's a place to start, but how, how passionate and how, how much of it is just ugh, inside of us that we want to see lost people saved so bad that we will do whatever it takes to spend hours on our knees praying for our neighbors, making lists, following up with them, praying some more, how, how dedicated are we to that type of passion for prayer? And he said one more quote by Ravenhill. He says, The man who can get believers to praying would, under God, usher in the greatest revival that this world has ever seen. If all of us spent two and a half hours a day with Jesus, I think we would change the face of this city. I'm confident I believe that. And so this leads me to another challenge for you and myself that I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to encourage you to join me in it. Um, in that Live Dead Journal, it, it challenges you for 30 days to tithe your day to Jesus. So a tithe is roughly, tithe just means 10%. So 10% roughly of 24 hours is two and a half hours about. And so I want to encourage you, and I'm going to do it myself, is to spend two and a half hours a day with Jesus for 30 days. And see what happens. See what happens in your desire to be in the Word, your desire to be in prayer. See what happens when you're around lost people that are confused and hurting, and you're spending all this time with Jesus. And as you fill yourself with the Word, the Word never returns void. That is going to come out. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Okay? So just an example of what that could look like. You could read the Word for an hour, memorize Scripture for five minutes, pray for 30 minutes, worship, listen to music, meditate, whatever, for 30 minutes, and then just sit and listen or journal for five to ten minutes. It's two and a half hours a day, and you can break that up however you want. I would encourage you to think through that. And even if you fail each day and you only get two hours, that's incredible. Even if you only get an hour, 
That's probably better than most of us are doing. So I would encourage you, think through, how can you start applying these truths? How can you start walking in newness of life where everything about who you are and what you're doing has to do with Jesus? And as Brian has been saying a lot, if we're going to go to Rose Park and be salt and be light, I'm sorry, I'm saying this to myself first, what do I have to offer if my cup's empty? What do we have to offer hurt, dying, lost people if our cup is empty? All the talent and the abilities sometimes I think are our biggest hindrance to actually depending on God to do an incredible thing because we think, hey, I got this. So thank you, God. Help us with this, but I'm going to go take care of this. Instead of, God, I'm going to spend all of my best time with you so that you will fill me and make me new so that everywhere that my feet take me, God, I am an instrument of your mercy, an instrument of hope. These are the things that have been blowing me up all week. Um, It's such a different mind shift of doing things because I should do them versus I want to be this type of person because this is who I was designed to be. Does that make sense? And not everybody grew up with that understanding. I didn't grow up hearing pray diligently for the lost. I didn't hear that until I went to college, unfortunately. I didn't grow up in a home where we read the Bible together all the time. I didn't grow up in a home where we memorized Scripture. We went to church and did our church thing. That was Christianity for me. And I'm sad to say that's not the the case that we see in the text. That's not what we've been called to do. We've not been called to come here just to be here. This is a peace This is the start, as Brian was saying. This is where we come together and we hear the word, we're encouraged, we bring fellowship, we bring others into this and invite them to see who we are as a church. And then we scatter Monday through Saturday and we go wherever God has called us to go. We be salt, we be light, we overflow, we pour our lives into the lives of other people and invite them into this journey, into this family with us. Um, how can we expect to share Jesus to an unbelieving world when we don't even live like we really believe Jesus to the point that we are consumed with Jesus every day? I hope, my hope is for us that we would be a church, that we would be people that are so consumed with Jesus that we don't have to think about doing these things anymore, that these things become part of who we are. It's just, I wake up and I'm in the Word. I wake up and I want to pray. I wake up or I have time at night and I want to be in the Word because that's what I know to be the best thing for my life is God's designed me to be intimately connected to Him as John 15 talks about one of my favorite passages. And I should have brought a little, uh, I should have brought an extension cord, but we all know how extension cords and outlets work even though there's not one anywhere near me, um, <laughs> unfortunately. But a great common day parable would be is Jesus were saying, hey, look, I am the outlet. If there's an outlet here, you are the extension cord. As long as you are connected to me, you will have the power that you need to do the things I've designed you to do. Without being plugged into the source of power, the source of life, an extension cord is completely worthless in terms of its purpose. Yeah, you can use it for a rope. You can use it for other weird things or shenanigans, but it's not being used for its designed purpose. It was designed to be a conduit between the power source and things that need the power source. Okay? And so we plug into Jesus. Sorry, it's just a little cheesy, but we plug into Jesus, and that, that runs, that cord goes all over and plugs into different things that need hope, need light. And that thing comes on and sees that 
through this life, through this conduit, that this is the source, not the extension cord. The outlet is the thing that powers everything in this room. All this stuff is powered from the outlet. And not to mention, Jesus' father was an electrician, so he's got the whole building wired up. <laughs> and the outlet is always going to work. We flip on the lights, it works, okay? So he's wired this whole thing. And so our, our job is to be the extension cord to go to whatever person, device that we can and bring hope and bring power to their lives through the Spirit of God that's living inside of us. And then as, we, as they experience the power that is in us through Christ, we take them and we say, you know what, you actually don't need me that much, you actually need this outlet. And so we take them and we plug them in directly. And we say, you need to plug in with Jesus. And then we go and find another person that we can reach that needs the connection between us and the power source. Okay? And so our goal in our whole life as disciples is to be people that are making disciples, being people that are reaching places where there is no power, where there is no hope, where there is no light. We are the extension cord between that outlet and something like, like a hairdryer. Once again, that hairdryer without the power source is completely useless to its design. So if we are not doing this, if we are not being a conduit between the power that is in us and the people that are needing hope, that person is going to sit there for a long time, potentially. But if we have the opportunity, why wouldn't we go? And if we are not living to our designed purpose, connecting to the outlet, connecting to the power through intimate times, extravagant times with Jesus, we can't fulfill our designed purpose. And so I'd encourage you, be people that live the way God's designed you. And that's going to look differently how you worship, pray, study. It doesn't matter what it looks like. But we, have to, we have to be these type of people. So if we're going to go to Rose Park and make disciples, we've got to be self-feeders. You guys heard that term, self-feeders? We come here, and hopefully you guys aren't coming here necessarily just, and this is the only time that you're getting fed spiritually. Our hope and our prayer for you is that Monday through Sunday, you have an intimate connection with Jesus, and you are pursuing God on your own. This on Sunday is a place for us to, it's a bonus lesson, if you will. It's a bonus meal. It's like Taco Bell. They have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Or if you're really fortunate or not really fortunate, you can go and have fourth meal. Okay? <laughs> fourth meal. It's not the standard one, two, three, but if you're up late, apparently you can have an extra meal. That's how I see this Sunday night sermon. This is a fourth meal for you guys. If you guys call yourself Christians, this is fourth meal. Okay? Monday through Sat through Sunday. You should be having your breakfast, your lunch, and your dinner on your own in this thing right here. And then you come here and have a really awesome fourth meal. Hopefully you don't leave as sick as you would from Taco Bell, but hopefully you enjoy what, is, what we're here to encourage and challenge and inspire and confess to you like I'm trying to do tonight. And so we have to be people that live to pursue God first in order that we have something to model while we're walking with God in newness of life. What do we have to model if we don't pursue? Pursue, model, and then we teach. We offer hope in that order. It can't be the other way around. We can't just hope to live our life and never spend any time pursuing the Father because what, what we model actually ends up being really wonky and weird then because we haven't pursued the Father. We're pursuing activity, talents, our abilities, our showmanship, whatever, and then if we're teaching, who knows what that is. This is the source of all fruitfulness right here. So imagine, if you will, if all of us in this room were self-feeding Monday through Sunday, every single day we're dining 
with Jesus every single day? What if we were all that way? What would that look like? Would that transform your neighborhood if your entire family was just so intimately connected to Jesus that it just came out? That you just... you. You were different. We all talk about that. We all say we want to be people that people notice. There's something different about you. I would beg to say this is the difference maker. This intimacy with God is what makes you different. We are all created unique. But apart from Him, Jesus said in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. So if we are not plugged into Him, we take our extension cord and we drop it next to the hairdryer, they plug in, still nothing happens. Okay? This connection is essential. It's not optional. It's essential. And so just a few examples that I, I was skimming through Acts um, of this incredible type of overflow. This, their commitment to Jesus was who they were. It wasn't like, I have to go do this. They were about Jesus. That's who they were. Acts 2.42, we all have probably heard this one. The fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. Okay, they were devoted to this community. They were devoted to the fellowship, the people, devoted to prayer, devoted to breaking bread together, eating meals in their homes. They were devoted all across the board. Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. It's talking about the Sanhedrin here that's arguing, trying to put them away. It says, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So they're like, they recognize these guys are like totally not educated, common dudes, but we recognize that these guys have been with Jesus. Now, obviously Jesus had been in their time, but they recognized that there was something about these guys' lives that was so different that they knew that their difference was that they were around that guy named Jesus. I hope in, that we would be that type. That's the kind of thing we all want to see, right? You walk past us and say, I, I recognize that guy's been with Jesus. Acts 4.29, same story. And now, in this prayer, they're saying, uh, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So as these guys are being persecuted... And they're being put in prison, and they, they, are, they escape, and they, the angel frees them, and they come back. And their prayer is not, God, will you please stop persecuting us? Their, their prayer is not, please put us in a safe haven out in the middle of nowhere. Their prayer is, as we are continually persecuted, give us boldness to share the gospel. Give us boldness to share Jesus with people as they beat us and throw us into prison. Acts 5.38 this is the jail story, excuse me. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For, it is, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overwhelm them or overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So these apostles are living in such a way that even people that are complete heathens and pagans recognize, look, Let's not mess with these guys anymore because if this may be from God, and if it is, we're practically fighting God. This is not cool. Three verses down in 41 uh, and 42. This is the last example here. Then they left the presence of the council, talking about the apostles here. They rejoined, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day... In the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. This is ridiculous. Like, I can't even imagine being put in prison, first of all, let alone being beaten and then put in prison, or any combination of any of those things. 
than to get out and immediately say, thank you, Lord, that I was counted worthy to be beaten, to be imprisoned, and to suffer for your name. Okay, guys, I know what we should do now. Let's go preach boldly. Let's go teach everyone from house to house. Let's just go keep doing what we're doing. This is the kind of stuff that we look at in the book of Acts and we say, that's incredible. I believe that we can be these type of people. I believe that if we will pursue God with an extravagant, reckless abandon, that we can be these type of people. These were not special, super spiritual giant people. These were knuckleheads, just like me and you. These are people that had insecurities and flaws. Peter denied Jesus multiple times, and yet God still, Jesus still let him uh, carry the mantle of ministry. I mean, we are just like these guys. There's no difference between them and us. We can be this type of people, and I hope that we will. So last thing, as I've been saying, um, my encouragement to those of us that call ourselves Christians in this room is Ezra 7.10 can be a mantra for us as well. Um, so Ezra is being sent to teach the people, and in 7.10 he says, For Ezra has set his heart to study the law of God, study the law of the Lord, that's pursue, and to do it, to model, and to teach his statutes in and rules in Israel to teach, pursue, model, teach. Ezra 7.10. I encourage you to memorize that verse because that's, that's something that we ought to be living by, that we pursue the Word of God, we pursue intimacy with Him to know Him. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, and all that he does prospers. Okay, this is the type of thing. We, all ministry effectiveness, all fruitfulness starts with intimacy with God. So as I start to wrap up here, Christians, we have a lot of work to do in this area in terms of pursuing intimacy with God because it is all that matters. The end of our life, 100 years from now, the only thing that matters is what you did with Jesus. You stand before God and He says, yeah, you did a lot of church planting, you did a lot of this, you did a lot of that, but I don't even know you. We don't want to be those people. Be the people that are pursuing intimacy with God modeling it, walking in newness of life so that we can present something to God as those of us that have been brought from death to life so that the gospel can go forth to the places that we go. If you're not a Christian in this room, if you've not professed belief in Christ, my encouragement to you is to read John 14.6 and many other things, that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Him. My encouragement to you is if you are struggling and lost and hurting and wondering, where do I find hope and purpose for my life? What's the meaning? What's the design? Why am I here? It's Jesus. He's the answer. He is everything that you'll ever need. He's everything that you'll ever want. And belief in Jesus is only the beginning. So please come talk to us if you want to know what it means to follow Jesus. There's belief and there's confession. And as you walk in that, we want to walk with you. So as we, as we move into a time of communion here, um, I want us to continue just to reflect on the incredible, the incredible nature of what Jesus has done for us. The, we talked about it, we've been talking about it almost every week. We have been brought from death to life. We used to be in all of this muck and all this mire and all this sin and all of our pride and all of our arrogance, and we thought we knew better. And Jesus, through God and His grace, came down and showed us that we are not all that there is to this world and that Jesus is the answer. Jesus 
through the hope of the gospel is what we're here for. So as we reflect on communion, ushers, if you want to come forward um, at this time, um, just want to continue to encourage you. Reflect on your salvation. Reflect on the fact that you have been saved and sanctified for a purpose. My question is, as we reflect on that sanctification and salvation, are you living that purpose out? Are you embracing your identity in Christ as a, as a person that's been made alive? And are you walking in newness of life? Or have you, have you sat down? Have you, are you just standing there? And it's okay if you are. Acknowledge where you're at today. There's no guilt and shame for those of us that are in Jesus. Recognize where you're at and take a step in the right direction today and continue to walk with Jesus. Redeeming Life Church is located in Salt Lake City, Utah. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit www.redeeminglifeutah.org.